Welcome to the Sports Law Podcast. It is September. Schools are back in. People are back from the beaches. The excuse that they can't join a conference call is gone. And to join us to talk about venture capital in sports and technology is one of the smartest people around. We will get to her in one second. But first, if you like what you hear today, please remember to uh, subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Go to our website, sportsloft.co, and sign up to our newsletter. We'll get a digest on a weekly basis of everything that's happening in the world of sports, media, and technology. And also follow us on socials at sportsloftHQ. So it is with great pleasure to welcome from the NBA League offices in New York City, New York, Jasmine Robinson of Causeway Venture Capital. Jasmine, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. This is the first time in the history of Sportsloft that we have two Sportsloft advisory board members on the podcast at the same time. Uh, I think people know that I am on it for reasons that remain completely unknown. But Jasmine is one of the smartest people in the industry and, and really fantastic. Um, she is a partner at Causeway Venture Capital and has had her fingers in many, many of the more interesting deals that the growth stage fund has been involved with. Um, so with that said, Jasmine, give us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do day to day with Causeway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I came into the sports industry by way of the NFL, despite being in the NBA offices here, uh, working for the San Francisco 49ers across strategy and then moving into investing with the ownership group there. Um, and that's really actually how I came to get connected with Causeway. My partner, Mark, at Causeway is a co-owner in the 49ers, so lots of close relationships there. And together, the two of us, plus our partners, Whit Grossbeck, who's lead owner of the Boston Celtics, as well as Bob Higgins, who founded a pretty well-known venture capital fund called Highland Capital Partners, come together to form uh, the team at Causeway. And at Causeway, we're really focused on backing early growth stage companies in sports and adjacent areas. For us, that's anything that touches the sports ecosystem through to health, wellness, and fitness, gaming, media, and entertainment. So really sort of a broad swath of, of coverage there. Um, we have about a $350 million in capital under management invested in uh, lots of great companies that we love partnering with from Flow Sports to SeatGeek, Formula E, Niantic. Uh, it's really a, quite a broad range of companies that we partner with. And yeah, just me and the rest of the team really love to collaborate and work with management teams to help businesses to scale. So that's really why we do what we do. Very interesting background there. And, and you talked a little bit about the partners who are involved. And a lot of them, as we know, have other interests as well, whether it's Wick with his ownership of the Celtics or uh, a variety of other people who come from the world of finance and, and, and funding. How do you get opportunities coming through the doors and how do they sit with Causeway versus potentially another fund that uh, that the partners are are involved with? Yeah, so all of our sort of investing that happens at the sort of early and growth stage really all happens through Causeway. So uh, while all of us do make some ad hoc angel investments and early stage investments, anything that's happening in the later stage is really flowing through Causeway. Um, and really, we see a lot of our deals from you know, some of those early stage things we're doing from, you know, some of the things that we're doing outside of Causeway, whether that's Wick with the Celtics or Mark with the 49ers or others. Um, so really that kind of network and the relationships that uh, we all have built in our sort of sports operating and ownership uh, spaces of our worlds, those relationships can come to be really helpful for our portfolio companies. So yeah, it's really that network that I think is is key to finding great opportunities as well as, you know, our existing portfolio companies, which is now 20 plus companies all 
all together. And we get really great leads through our portfolio company CEOs as well, who really know what, what makes a business work in the space. So let's talk a little bit about your portfolio companies, because you have some, some very interesting ones, you know, Formula E, Freeletics, Flow Sports. I mean, do you only invest in companies that start with F? Um, the interesting thing about that is that there's a huge range, right? So you have companies that are primarily tech companies. You have companies that are uh, in the health space uh, with a sports bent. You have rights holders. You have um, data-focused companies. And so I'd love you to unpack a little bit how you look at each opportunity because you're one of the better-known funds in the sports world. So you must be just a ton of different stuff from all sorts of different angles. How do you start to unpick that and decide to make one of those companies a portfolio company? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first and foremost for us, it starts with the team. And so, you know, getting introduced to the CEO and the management team and really understanding their vision. I think to bring that together with some of the theses that we have about this sports space. So, you know, we're we're often bouncing off ideas and saying, you know, we'd really love to find a company in this area or that area. And so when a great management team lines up with something that really ties to our core beliefs about the sports ecosystem, that's really usually a good recipe to get us really excited and, and moving quickly to try to get involved. Give me an example of a investment that you made either recently or, or earlier where you invested in the team and the business potentially pivoted either significantly or a little bit from what was originally the positioning of the business. Maybe I'd talk about Flow Sports, which is one of our earliest investments. So when uh, my colleague Mark led uh, that investment back in 2014, they were really serving two main sports, track and wrestling, and and really just sort of trying to figure out like what would it take to to make a subscription business work. They were operating the business profitably, which is always a good sign uh, sort of in those early days. Um, we came in and said, you know, this is great the way you're running the business, but we feel like with more capital and, and you know, taking you from profitable to unprofitable, that's actually where some of the growth is going to come from uh, to really make this big business. Um, and so with the team there, help them to think through what are the other verticals that they could be serving? You know, what really should the subscription model look like long term? You know, they were monthly subscribers. How do we take that to an annual subscription business? Um, so really thinking through some of those pivots of where it makes sense to invest. And certainly they had things that really worked right away and then other things that were sports or sort of business model angles that they tried and didn't work. And I think it's really about kind of adapting and learning from some of those pivot points to really get to a healthy business model. And so that's been a really fun team to work with because that business has uh, made a lot of pivots along the way, but gotten to an amazing place in terms of the scale and the content that they create for, for some really core verticals of sports that are so underserved otherwise. How difficult are those conversations? Because I'd imagine that a founder, founders have very clear visions most of the time about what they want to do and where they want to go and to then have an investor come on board and start to like gently nudge or direct or in some cases completely change the direction must be tough how does that work from your perspective as a as an investor as a partner in the in the business i think first of all whenever we come into a business it's because we really believe in the ceo and the team that we're backing and believe in the vision as they have it laid out so i think we go in with the thesis that 
we like this vision and actually the business model is working typically given sort of the stage that we're investing. And so any incremental changes that are happening along the way really tend to be us providing guidance about what we've seen in other situations or areas for opportunity that we're seeing with our more global perspective of the industry. And at the end of the day, it's the CEO and the management team's decision whether they want to implement that or not. You know, we always come in as minority shareholders. We'll take board seats, but we're certainly not you know, trying to come in and change or shift strategy in any way. But typically, as with any businesses, you find some things that are working and some things that didn't work quite how you thought when you laid out the strategy. And when those situations come up, we like to do our very best to be great sounding boards and be able to share examples of where we've seen similar situations happen in the past or good resources that CEOs or management teams should speak with who might have an informed perspective on a decision they're making. Um, And hopefully that's all just sort of good input, more information to help the CEO and management team to be the ones to then enact and choose to take those pivots. Without naming names or giving away confidential information, or, or, or do if you wish, entirely up to you. Give me a time when you or one of your one of your partners has been in a quote unquote tough conversation with with a portfolio company uh, and sort of helped direct them in the right way. And how that went was it did it did it sour the relationship for a little bit, or did it ultimately turn out to be positive? I'm just fascinated about that dynamic. One of the reasons that I feel like myself and my partners all get along so well is that, um, you know, we all like to be very direct and transparent about what we're thinking, but also do it with a lot of respect and care and interest in sort of all parties involved. And so I think whenever there's a tough conversation, whenever you're starting with that, caring about the person involved, caring about the outcomes, I think it's really a collaboration and a discussion about where you think things can go. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, one of the great things I think is given that baseline, if you called any of the CEOs in our portfolio, I think one of the things you'd hear consistently is that in both good times and challenging times that, uh, you know, the partnership has stayed really strong. And I think that's something that that we all pride ourselves on and it is a big priority. Um, So not to say that we don't have tough conversations, but I think, you know, tough conversations coming from a place of uh, respect and transparency uh, tends to be a good recipe for success. Absolutely. So let's shift a little bit to the macro view and kind of how you guys are viewing the world right now. We're all starting to come back to to work in a little bit more uh, pressing manner after the break, especially here in Europe. And it's it's a world that is very different to what it was even six months ago with uh, lots of inflation, with uh, some some concerns about geopolitical stability, with uh, supply chain issues, um, a whole host of different things. How is it impacting you guys and how are you viewing, are you, are you adopting a different strategy or do you sort of cut through and say now is, now is actually a really interesting time to find the next, the next opportunities? Yeah, so I definitely think we're, we continue to actively deploy capital despite sort of the broader uncertainty that exists out there. I think um, mostly because, you know, we're long-term investors. We're typically looking to invest in a business and be there for five, seven, ten plus years. Um, and so with that lens, uh, we believe in sort of the the strength of opportunities in the long run and I think are less concerned about sort of what's happening in the short run. Um, and I'd say like when we think about Uh, the right valuation to get into a business, certainly a lot of the comps have come down and a lot of um, sort of across the venture ecosystem overall. And so we definitely factor that in as we're sort of pricing deals today. But I think 
that's really prudent to do now, but also was prudent to do, you know, even when valuations were sky high to really think about like fundamentally what can this business be worth long term through ups and downs and economic cycles. And also for that reason, not overpay and have a business that's going to have to take a big haircut down the line in a downtime. So I think that's kind of consistent with with where we've been. I think what's more interesting is just that they're, in addition to some of these negative economic or macroeconomic trends, I think we're also seeing some really interesting positive economic trends tied specifically into the spaces where we spend time. So like thinking about what's happening in, you know, live sport, we're seeing unprecedented demand, really, really strong interest in tickets, live events more broadly. So there are lots of positive trends that also get us excited to be deploying capital or scaling businesses with management teams in this environment as well. So yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting time and it's really a case by case situation of what are what are teams that we feel are well positioned for success, trying not to overweight the macro. When you do look at these kinds of factors, especially in terms of the portfolio companies that you have, how much of a long-term view do you take? Do you have a calculation or a barometer for deploying the parachute and saying, guys, this is just too much. We need to get out of this. I would say that, you know, maybe in a similar thing that we've talked about before, it's really a lot about when is the CEO and the management team ready to find an exit and what should that exit look like? So I would say, you know, we go into investments being upfront that, you know, we're not an evergreen fund like a traditional venture fund. We have a 10-year fund life and, you know, we need to sort of respect some of those parameters that we have with our limited partners. And so we're sort of clear about that timeline up front. And then from there, it's really up to the CEO and the management team to think about what kind of an exit they want to find at what time. And hopefully we can be useful sounding boards along the way of, you want to do this today, you know, maybe you might get more value if you waited 12 months, you know, what are the reasons to pull it forward? What are the different types of strategies or structures that could help to create some liquidity today, but enable us all to sort of lean in and capture some more upside and value looking forward. So minority shareholders were never really, you know, sell the business, get out, anything like that. It's really much more a conversation about how do we create value and also how do we make sure that we're accomplishing the goals of everyone around the table to to make for a successful outcome. Do you always take minority positions? Is that a, that's a thesis of, of the fund? Why, why, why is that? Um, we do that because we like to come into businesses where the CEO and management team are well incented to build and scale the business. We really like to see the CEO and management own a really significant portion of the company. So coming into a buyout, oftentimes, you know, you're going to go in, you're going to make a bunch of management changes, you're going to sort of totally strip and change sort of where the business is headed. We want to come into fundamentally sound and strong companies with excellent, well-built-out management teams who are really just looking for some capital to scale the business. And so I think it's really about back to our orientation on team. Uh, We need the team to be there and we want them to have the equity incentives to build and grow an amazing business for the long term to, to feel confident that it's somewhere we want to deploy capital. And do you look for that deployment to be used in specific ways, whether it's expansion of a team or unlocking of new revenues, or do you have faith in the team that they can figure it out and, and go from there? How does, how does that work for you guys? So when we deploy capital, it's never earmarked to a specific usage, but typically the management team says, you know, here, here are the, the uses that I think I'm going to use this capital for. But as we all know, things change, situations change, potential acquisitions come up out of nowhere, or one customer acquisition channel is really working and you want to pour more capital into that. 
Uh, so there are reasons that can kind of change that allocation. I'd say we also come in and sometimes we're giving sort of primary capital, as I've been talking about, to drive growth, but also equally we'll come in and buy secondary capital if there are folks on the cap table that you know, want some liquidity and maybe aren't, you know, actively involved in the business anymore. We're sort of equally happy to do that, to be sort of another voice and stakeholder around the table and create that kind of a situation too. So I'd say very, we're very flexible in the way we use capital as long as we feel like we're deploying it in a way that drives good returns for our limited partners. And as long as we feel like we're backing great team and company, we kind of trust the CEO and management team to figure it out with guidance and help and support along the way where they want it. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that partnership approach and kind of considering being partners. And also, it makes a lot of sense in terms of the thesis that you guys have, which is to come into existing companies, not startups and kind of provide the liquidity. How do you go about building that partnership approach and ensuring that you're going to have that? Do you spend time beyond the pitch process with the founders to make sure that there's a relationship there that's a trust relationship? Do you rely on a network of people who can actually sound it out and say, oh yes, this person is is really fantastic. It makes a ton of sense to, to work with them. And then once that's established, what do you do as an investor and as a partner to continue that relationship and that open exchange? I think the ideal situation that we'd love to see in making an investment is CEO who we met two years before we need to write a check, for example. You know, someone who we're like, we get to know this person, hopefully we can be helpful to them along the line, they can keep us updated on what's going on with the business. And so when we get to that funding moment where there's a great stage fit, and it's the right time for both sides, we've kind of built up that trust and gotten to know one another enough and we feel like we can dive in quickly. Obviously in reality that doesn't always happen and so we find ways to short circuit that process and for us it tends to be a lot of showing up and spending time with people in person. I think that's one of the things that was really hard about the pandemic is that because we are so relationship oriented you know we like to go have a handful of in-person interactions with the CEO and the management team prior to making an investment and we don't really like having to do everything over Zoom so we're glad that that travel is a bit a bit back to normal um, and so we really go try to sort of spend some dedicated time and show up and and get to know the team that way um, and try to gather as much information as we can as well as just be really clear about the kind of partners that we intend to show up as and make sure that that's really what the management team is looking for. And so I think the more we, we're clear about that communication and, and spend the time to build a relationship, we can end up in good situations and certainly also do our diligence around reference checking, get sort of more signals about the team as well. And then post-investment, I mean, I think that theme of showing up continues. I think we're definitely, despite a few years of Zoom board meetings, you know, about showing up in person, trying to make time for a dinner or a lunch around it to have informal conversations and really build real relationships, not just talk about the business relationships. And I think that's a good basis then when you do have to have tough conversations or you want to talk through, you know, you want people to be sort of open and transparent with you. I think, you know, having those relationships helps to build trust and comfort for for people to act in, in that way as well. And yeah, it definitely takes time and logging some miles on the plane, but it's so worth it. And I mean, that in-person factor is something that I personally love and get a lot of energy from. So it's part of why I like to do this job. Well, we've certainly talked to Charlie about having the advisory board meetings in Tahiti now that uh, now that everything's opened up. So that's one that's coming. Yes, hopefully. exactly. <laughs> um, it also sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you keep half an eye on the startup sports ecosystem. Even though you're not going to invest as Causeway at that point, you're constantly monitoring what's coming up because 
You want to build those relationships with the folks who are going to be potentially looking for, you know, Series B funding or whatever it might be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how is that possible? Like, <laughs> tell me how you do it and how you go about doing that. Yeah, it definitely takes time and we're certainly not perfect in meeting uh, every single early stage sports media fitness company that's out there. But we try to meet as many as we can. Um, We have really close relationships with a lot of the earlier stage investors in this space, which I think is a great way to do that at scale. And luckily, our vertical of sports investing is is so collaborative and connected that it really makes it easy to, to do that. And so we make sure we stay really in touch with all the other funds that are spending time in this space. You know, I love getting connected to the sports loft companies. I love getting involved with Stadia and other startups accelerators. So really try to find any way we can. And then honestly, just by taking the time, like if anyone, anyone who's listening to this, if you're interested in getting to know Causeway or me, like just send me an email and I will make the time to, to set up a call because I love building those relationships and we like to keep that funnel as wide as we can. And certainly I think you can't know if a business is exciting or high priority to stay in touch with until you've had that conversation and gotten to hear the vision from the folks who are building it. So it's important, but it is time consuming for sure. I can certainly endorse that and say that Jasmine always does get back to, to emails. So anybody who is listening, please, please do that. Her email is on the website, as is everybody's at Causeway, which is which is very much indicative of the kind of approach that they take. Let me take you back to the, uh, I was just so fascinated by that side that we snaked back from the macro perspective. But um, what, if anything, worries you about the current situation, whether it's about the portfolio companies and how they're performing or uh, future investment, what's what's kind of hopefully not keeping you up at night, but at least giving you a little bit of a headache during the day? You know, I think one of the things that I think about a lot, just because we're really focused on uh, primarily direct to consumer companies is just sort of everything that's going on in the customer acquisition landscape right now. I think it's, you know, a lot has changed recently and consumer spending does pull back and as it does pull back, um, you know, I think the conversion and the actual retention and some of these numbers that are really important to to keep the growth engine going for consumer startup can become a big problem. So I think that's really kind of the feedback loop that I think about a lot when I think about, you know, what could a softening of consumer demand or recession look like for a lot of our companies. And so that has me always thinking about like, what are new channels where we should be spending time to drive organic interest? What are ways you can really continue to cement and strengthen the value proposition to make someone's choice to cancel that much harder? Really kind of thinking about how do you get those dynamics of the business super tight so that even in softening demand, it's it's not as significant of a challenge. And then I think it's about being being well capitalized, candidly, like, you know, things are going to come up, it, there are going to be challenges. And so making sure that all of our portfolio companies are well capitalized and making sure as we're thinking about new rounds that we're being, we're putting in the right amount of runway to help the management team to, to be successful and really have the time to go deliver on the milestones that they hope to accomplish with that capital. Which is certainly not easy, I'm sure, especially as, as um, things move. One of the interesting things, and you touched on it earlier, is that uh, there's a lot of things to be excited about as well. The economic downturn in, in the mid to late 2000s really showed that there was a shift from consumer expectations to experiences. And obviously, sports lead a lot of those experiences. There was actually a bit of an upturn in a lot of fundamental revenue lines for uh, teams. And you're probably too young to have been at the Niners at the time, but I'm sure you saw it and, and kind of lived through that. 
What are you excited about? What do you think is going to be a great opportunity coming hopefully soon out of this uh, downturn? I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, there are some interesting pockets of value that might not stand out to you immediately. And so thinking about how position to take advantage of those, I think at this point, it's too soon to know if we're definitely going to enter a recession, how long it's going to be, what it's going to look like. But, you know, there's interesting dynamics of consumer behavior where instead of going out to a restaurant or a movie, people are going to stay in and stream more content where, you know, companies in the sports betting and lottery type spaces tend to perform really strong in a recession because again they're sort of cheaper replacements to maybe more expensive entertainment experiences that consumers might pursue otherwise Um, and so i think some of those things really have the potential to see good strength even if there's pullback in consumer spending and then i think the other thing is that we tend to see pretty strong performance in the premium experiences if you think about a sporting event Um, Those tend to be the most resilient rather than just sort of the sort of more general experiences that are happening. And so I think that thesis of making sure that you have space in sporting events and experiences that are available and accessible, but also having a good index to some of that premium inventory and experience that does tend to be a little resilient um, is another thing that that I think about a lot and um, that we'll probably be watching uh, here in the coming months, depending on how how things continue to pan out in the economy. It's all about the experience economy, isn't it? One of the sort of maybe not indicators, but one of the victims of, of this downturn has been, you know, um, the, the world of Web 3.0. But there still seems to be a lot of optimism in it, um, especially in the uh, in the sports world. And you're at the NBA League offices where, you know, uh, NBA Top Shot is often held up as one of the leading lights of, of you know, capitalizing on NFTs. And as a former and current collector of uh, NBA cards, I was straight in there and I love it and you know I have I can we can spend a whole podcast talking about how brilliant it is and how if anybody wants to give me a Yanis metallic gold card I will happily have it but um what's what's your view um on it as Causeway and how much are you looking to get involved with it not get involved with it wait to see how it plays out take the okay web one crashed and then came back web two crashed and then came back and kind of see who really comes out of the murky depths uh, with a with a shining light For us, given the stage that we invest, and in particular, we like to see five or 10 million in revenue on an annual basis before getting involved. We find there are a lot of Web3 projects that kind of haven't gotten to that level of monetization yet, even if they've built strong audience. And then we've also found that there are some Web3 companies where they've generated substantial revenue, but we haven't yet seen that dynamic of recurring interest and engagement that would sort of get us comfortable that it's really a stage fit for us and not a, sort of a point in time success. And so the way we think about it is, you know, trying to find Web3 consumer experiences that uh, really do have that engagement dynamic that makes us confident that you know you have a base of customers and those customers really want to continue to engage with the platform and also uh, spend some money on engaging with the platform. Um, and so that's really what we look for. You know, we are investors in one company that uh, has strong Web3 monetization called Zigazoo. It's a kid's social media platform that's very education-oriented and that has great partnerships with everyone from the NBA to Nickelodeon to Moonbug, others. And so they're thinking about, you know, how can we build the next generation of collectible for uh, kids when they're really the 
the source of a lot of the uh, collectible passion, whether it's Beanie Babies or Pokemon cards or sports cards. And so I think what we really liked about that business was that they had these really strong brand partnerships. The NFTs were one good direct monetization channel for them and continue to be, but then that they also have other monetization options and sort of the core of the business, uh, you know, really has strength even if they chose not to sell NFTs. And so for us, it was like, this is a really interesting monetization model. We feel like collectibles and the kids' ecosystem is really interesting given the quality of the IP there. But, you know, the whole business doesn't have to ride on only monetizing there. And so they have the opportunity to, to play in lots of different verticals from a monetization standpoint. It's uh, it's it's certainly one to watch, isn't it? The way that the market is sort of fluctuated wildly, it, it makes a lot of people um, a lot of people nervous. But then you have the typical hold on for dear life uh, approach as well, which is uh, boring the whole industry. We'll see. We'll see where it nets out, right? I want to give you a, a choice here. A choice is tell us one funny story about each of your partners, <laughs> or tell us what is your favorite and your least favorite thing about being a partner in a VC in the sports and entertainment technology sector. I have lots of good stories, but I'll, I'll talk about uh, favorite and least favorite here. Um, so I think my favorite thing is really just, you know, I love getting to talk to founders and hear about the vision that they have for the world, you know, what they've built so far and, and then getting to be a small part and hopefully supporting a member of that journey to get where they want to go. Definitely that, you know, getting to be involved across that evolution and, and getting to not only know the business, but the people involved along the way is is the thing that gives me a lot of energy and excitement to to spend time in this space. And what I don't like, I would say that I hate having to tell companies no. Um, you know, we only back four or five companies a year. You know, I'm probably leading one or two deals in any given calendar year. So the, you know, you have to say no to a lot of companies given those dynamics. Um, and I hate it because often, almost always, you're talking to people that are super passionate and super expert about the space that they're building in that are building something really interesting and unique and and that you can see a lot of pathways to success for them. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, you know, given that I am relationship oriented and love all, you know, getting to know people involved in all of these businesses, you know, I wish I could support everyone, but obviously that, that's not the way the, the job works, so. Any that you passed on that you look back on and go, I knew it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, you know, we've passed on oh so many uh, successful businesses for sure. You know, I think that generally it's all about like, you know, what's what's the right risk profile to take here? And, um, you know, how do you have a sound decision making process and then try to land where you want to land? But uh, yeah, no, there's many great businesses that have been great or businesses we pass on saying, you know, kind of I think this team's going to be successful, but it's just you know, not quite a fit for us right now. And so, yeah, you, you always hate to do that. And honestly, then we just still try to be helpful wherever we can, even if we can't be investors, because even if we pass, we really want this whole ecosystem to, to succeed and, and scale in an effective way. So we love contributing any way we can, even if we can't contribute capital. Do you have one that you can name? Uh, not off the top of my head, but you know, it's, it's a long list. <laughs> I'll ask you, I'll ask you a different question then to wrap up. What are the what are the top two traits, speaking to all the founders who will be listening to this, the top two traits that you look for in a founder, not the founding team, the founder, the, the individual? I think I look for a passion around what they're building, like a sense that 
you know, no matter what, they're going to do everything in their power to really make this business successful because they love doing it and they care about bringing the solution to the market. And then I'd say I look for unique perspectives on the way the market is going to unfold and how the business can benefit from sort of the potential evolution of the market looking forward. You know, someone who's willing to have a contrarian perspective or who's thinking about an approach to a business that I've maybe seen five times, but really thinking about it in in a unique way that makes a lot of logical sense for for why there could be a bigger opportunity given given an alternative strategy. But yeah, I mean, I think really the right founder and the right traits beyond those for me tend to be uh, quite varied based on the business or business model. And I think a founder can can look and act a lot of different ways and be a really successful and effective founder. And so also try not to fall into a trap of like, this is what a founder looks or talks or acts like. Awesome. Well, Great words to end on. Uh, to our listeners, if you like what you heard, please uh, make sure that you go to our website, sportsloft.co, and sign up for our newsletter. The podcasts are always included in there. Do sign up and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts as well. And make sure that you follow us on socials at Sportsloft HQ. All that remains for me is to say a big thank you to the fantabulous Jasmine for joining us on the Sportsloft podcast. Jasmine, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much. It was a great time. Have a good one. Awesome. And for everyone else, we'll see you again very soon in the Sportsloft. Goodbye. <laughs>